0: How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 237, and I sat down with Richard Dresser. He is an award-winning playwright, he is an author, and a screenwriter, he's written on tons of TV shows that you will definitely recognize. He won an Ace Award for the Vietnam War stories on HBO. He was a writer for The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, uh, The Job, starring Dennis Leary, The Education of Max Bickford, starring Richard Dreyfuss, Bakersfield PD, and on and on and on. He wrote the book for The Good Vibrations, Beach Boys musical, and also for Johnny Baseball uh, musical. He just finished his first novel. It's called It Happened Here. It's set in a mildly dystopian i mean dystopian for many of us but maybe status quo for others uh in the future 2019 through 2035 it's a retrospective so it's basically a series of interviews within this family and it was such a it was a fantastic read Uh, what's happened in this book is that a president has decided that he really wants to stick around and not abide by the eight-year rule or the four-year rule even and sticks around and what happens to the country as a result what happens to this family as a result so within this family unit there are two sides of the family that have very different politics and belief systems the book is more about what goes on within this family in the context of what's going on in the nation uh Wow, really good, intense read. I highly recommend it. Of course, I'll have a link to it on the links page of heyhumanpodcast.com. Speaking of things like that, social media, Hey Human Podcast, you can be found on Facebook and Instagram. I encourage you definitely to check out the Instagram because I find all sorts of interesting people throughout history and modern time to do little write ups about them. And they could be fascinating kids, or scientific discovery people, or astronauts, or movie stars, or diabolical beings. It's all on there, so definitely check that out. My personal social media is Susan Ruthism, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can email me, Susan at Hey Human Please do that. Uh, I would love to hear from you. You can rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps with the algorithms to get more and more people to know about the show. It's a great thing that you can do to help support a free podcast like this one and to uh, get the word out. I appreciate it as well. So that counts for something. If you want to sign up on my mailing list, go to susanruth.com where you'll find more information about me in general as well, uh, beyond the podcast. As I mentioned a minute ago, there is a links page on heyhumanpodcast.com where I curate every episode, uh, information, books, magazines, guests, where to find them, uh, all the things that we chat about within the episode. Well, not all the things, but a lot of the things. I go and try and find more information for you so that you don't have to. And you can go to one-stop shop and Be able to get more deep dived into every episode. Speaking of shops, Hey Human merchandise is available. So exciting! It is on the storefront on HeyHumanPodcast.com. It's safe and secure. You can get notebooks, pens, art. Leggings, kids clothes, t-shirts, hats, masks, so many things. And it's another great way to support Hey Human Podcast. If you want to hear any of my music, go to Susan Ruth on iTunes. I'm on Spotify too, but maybe you'll download some songs and things if you're on iTunes. So Susan Ruth there for my four records that I have put out. I think that is pretty much it. I'm back from my vacation. So I am in real time for the week that this is coming out. What did I miss? Haha, <laughs> Lots going on in the world. <laughs> Most especially lots going on here in America. And, uh, yeah, I digress. Anyway, be kind, be happy. Uh, I'm sending big love out there. This is a very rambly, which I'll probably cut later, but maybe not. Cause who knows? Uh, definitely pick up Richard's book. It happened here. It's fantastic. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being you. And let's do this. Here we go. Richard Dresser, welcome to Hey Human podcast.
1: Thank you. It's so nice to be here.
0: Yeah, it's uh, we
1: I've heard great things about your podcast.
0: Oh, wonderful.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: Oh, that, that makes me happy. Uh, we have a mutual friend, Russ Woody. I'm sure he's the one that said nice things. Yes. Yeah. The check will be in the mail to him as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love Russ. He's a great guy.
1: He is. He is. Yeah. I've worked with him in TV a number of times, and we're still friends. Yeah. There.
0: yeah. <laughs> I'm in a writer group with him that we meet up on Sundays on Zoom these days. And uh, he has been lovely and wonderful. He's very much mentor vibe, friend vibe. He's a, just a love bug.
1: He's a very generous human being. He's told me yeah. about that group. It sounds wonderful.
0: You should join up sometime. Just come and drop in.
1: Well, he, he invited me to. So watch out. Oh, good. Happen. That will happen. Well,
0: that makes me happy. Well, he speaks volumes about you. He loves you.
1: Well, it's mutual. Beautiful thing. <laughs>
0: Yay! You're a playwright and an author. You've, uh, which you know about yourself, but I'm letting them know that that are listening. And uh, I, you just put out a book called It Happened Here. Yes. I read it, and it is it it's a really excellent book. The hardest part for me was reading it and not stressing out to high heaven. In fact, it got to the point where I said, I'm just gonna. Because normally I read quite rapidly. Uh, and I said, I'm just going to allow myself 65-ish pages a night. So that I don't... And even with that, my dreams were so vivid and intense. And I think you might be a wizard. Because you knew things and you you know things. that I, I imagine you started writing this book a while ago. And yet the things you are writing about are happening. <laughs> <And> so... <laughs>
1: Yes, I'm not sure how that came about, other than the fact that um, I went into some kind of zone when I was writing this book, and I was sort of um, just plugged into all the things that we seem to be plugged into these days. So all of that world was very alive in my head, and it was really about this awful sense of where it's going. And I am basically a very optimistic person, but I had to go deep into that place. And I'll just give one example, which of course you know about, is that in the, uh, in the, in the novel, The Great Leader, at, at a certain point, he's up for uh, reelection, and he announces that because of all of the corruption and interference in the election, it's going to be postponed for a month. And so when our current president tweeted out the possibility of postponing the election, people that had read the book were calling me up and they were actually blaming me for it as if I'd given them the idea. And it's like, I don't have that kind of power in the universe. But I did just feel like I plugged into something in the political part of it. But I don't think that the political, I I would be interested in your, what you think about this. I don't think the political part is the scariest part.
0: I I mean, I agree. I I think perhaps I think because the great leader in your book isn't the focus per se, it's this thing that's happening on the periphery, or really that had happened because of the way you've structured the story. But the the, the family, that really struck a nerve for me because I know so many people who, within their own family, within their peer group, workmates, I mean, across the board, that there's this this division either you're for or against, and that is it. There is no gray, no shades of gray going on here.
1: Right, right. Can I just give a brief description of what the book is? It's, it's an oral history of an American family between the years 2020 and 2035. So eight members of the family are looking back on the 15 years that we are facing. So in writing the book, it was People, people sort of looking back on events that obviously haven't happened yet that I imagine could happen based on the current situation. And the and the basic uh setup of the family is two brothers, one of them a veteran um, and who is very conservative, and, and he and his wife have three kids. And the other one, his brother, is very liberal, a history professor, and it plays out in this university town in the middle of the country. So it's basically. What many, many families and friends are going through, which is, as you say, we are living in this tremendous, heartrending divide. It's like in the Civil War when people went off and you know were literally fighting on different sides, and that emotionally is what I was trying to get at the sense of loving people, but being so diametrically opposed to everything they stand for and, and, and how hard that is. And I think, I think to me, that's why the book is scary is, as you say, the great leader is an offstage character and in some ways a, a, a dark and uh, comically horrific character. But the effects of what he does are lived by all of us. And so, you know, his, history is, is written about the great figures. And, and our, in our age, we know who, who, who will be written about, who will be analyzed. But history is lived by us, by everyday people. And so one of the things that I was going for in the book is almost everything that the family goes through is uh, a result of what the government has done. For example, a woman, a high school student gets pregnant and the the, the opportunity to make the choice about whether to have the baby or not is really taken out of her hands unless she risks her life. And so all of these choices that they make it's written in such a way that, well, of course, they just have to you know, decide what to do. I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. But you go on a slightly higher level in the story and you realize it's all coming from above. You know. So I think that, to me, that's the scariest part of the book.
0: That certainly stood out to me, especially as a woman reading it. But even more so, what I found scary was the... Um How easy it was for many people to just keep living their lives. Yeah. As you put it, you know, they have their Netflix, they have their deliveries, they have, they're just going about their way. They've been told how to think, what to think, where to think. And if they go beyond that, there's trouble. But if they just float along and do as they're told, then, you know, what's the difference? And that to me right there is the scariest part.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I would agree with that. And and I think float along is exactly the right description of it, because in a way, if you give up your freedom, then there are no real obstacles, uh, assuming you have enough privilege so that you can keep your life going and you can keep distract being distracted by Netflix and, and you can get your deliveries from Amazon Prime. And all of the things that we have gotten used to are still there. And it's the idea that our lives are taken away from us, our freedom is taken away from us, not by tanks rolling through our towns, but in a much more insidious way. And it is, scary, it is really scary that our... Creature comforts—the things that get us through the day, that we look forward to, that calm us, and that make us feel good—are those are the very things that are conspiring to deprive us of the deepest lives and the freest lives that we could have.
0: I I I had hope as I read it because Paul, for example, I love his gumption and his fortitude in the face of much, Uh, and I mean even. I think even Ruth in her, her way, the way she's dealing with things, uh, her choices that she's making. I love Louise because Louise was like, this is some crazy shit. I've got to document it. You know, I mean, there's I honestly, um, I can't remember. I don't want to give anything away, but um, uh, the, the pregnant girl for some reason now all of a sudden oh, ella. ella yeah her yeah. her her paramour when his choice uh, there are times when i look at those that kind of choice and i think yeah i get it yeah that yeah. that's a choice that's a strong choice yeah. and, and at least yeah. you're standing up for something you in know a, in a, i know that's weird to say but and for people i don't want to give it away you have to read the book it's it's excellent but it just, it stressed me out. I, I wouldn't say it, st- it stressed me out because it made me depressed other than, oh, crap, we're kind of in this. You know, but I could separate into the story itself, right. uh, you know, the idea. Have you ever read James Clavell' The Children's Story?
1: No. Oh, should-
0: it's an excellent book. But it, it had it has nothing to do, they have nothing to do with each other other than James Clavel wrote the children's story because his child came home from school one day and was doing the Pledge of Allegiance and getting the words wrong. and, And Clavel said, do you even, do you understand what you're saying? And the small child who was six or seven said, no, I just, we're supposed to say this. And in that moment, it struck him of the indoctrination of it all. And so he wrote this dystopian short story about what all that means yeah Yeah. i agree that it's you'll like it i think uh and the dystopian situation of your book uh your novel is it's funny i was actually i was describing it to someone today i said well it's fiction except for it's kind (laughs) of (laughs) nonfiction."
1: i take that actually i take that as high praise it's like what uh uh, Roy Blunt Jr. wrote uh, the blurb. He wrote was "It's so real," and, and which is um, which I was I was really uh, trying to do. And the fact that it doesn't feel totally like fiction is that I think that all of the political stuff is a leap, and at times a tiny leap from where we are right now. But also, full disclosure, I mean, a lot of the stuff that happens in the family is stuff that either happened to me or happened within my family. And none of the characters are directly taken from my family. But I come from uh, an extended family in New England, where whatever happens, we find our way back to each other, which I find incredibly hopeful and incredibly positive. It's why I believe the book is positive, even though It might also be somewhat terrifying because the family does find a way to stay connected to each other. But there's so much in the book. I was talking to my brother, two older brothers. I was talking to one of them the other night, and he was able to connect so much of this novel to things that we went through as kids and and just people we knew in the town where we grew up and everything. So I thought I was halfway through the book and I thought... This is my memoir. I will never write a memoir. I want the family to feel so real and the concerns of the family to be what we're concerned with right now, which is this this anxiety and this stress that is impossible to escape. And it's just become a part of us, you know?
0: Um, yeah, and the general as the patriarch, I, I really, I there is no one in my family like that, but I know other families that have that person in the family, and as I was reading along, the there were moments of these small victories, you know, the the family experiencing a small victory where for a moment everyone is on the same page, and right. it felt so very real.
1: Yeah, good, good, yeah. because I, I love the. The notion of those small moments which become so much more important based on where we are. I mean, I've heard people say that now with all this stress and all this division, that there's a level of sort of cruelty toward each other. And I have to say, my experience is exactly the opposite. Among my friends and my family, I think there's sort of a deeper consideration I mean, I know that I'm more careful in terms of the kind of uh, sort of um, remark that that could be very funny, but also could (laughs) possibly not make the other person feel that great. I'm very cognizant of that now. And I'm very touched by kindness now that it's like, it seems essential. It seems like oxygen. And it seems like I don't think this is giving away anything in the book, but it's the other reason why I consider it a very hopeful book is that by the end, there is a recognition that there is only one way out of the desert and that is to take care of each other.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And and I, you know, I, I believe that very deeply. And I, and I feel like it's like if you're struggling The tendency that most people have is to struggle more, to to try to get out, to struggle out of the situation. But the logical thing to do if you're struggling is to stop struggling, to be calm. And when you're in a divided, acrimonious situation, you're not going to win by being more acrimonious, more violent, more, you know, you're not that there's no winner then. But the way things, the way, you, the way you get out, the way all of us get out of this is, by, is through kindness. It's through, it's through taking, taking care of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mm-hmm. can safely say that this is not a treacly, sappy, sentimental book, as you know.
0: <laughs> Not at all, no. So,
1: so I can speak very, very openly about that's underneath so much of the book is that sort of, I feel like it's almost a primal need that we have now to take care of each other.
0: Yeah, I, again, I don't want to give anything away, but there, there's, a you know, the specter that comes around here and there. I thought that was a really, that was such a poignant, the reminder, That's the that's the tree branch when you're in the quicksand, the tree branch would show up. Yes,
1: exactly, exactly. And it's this, and it's the sense that the deeper we go into wherever we are, there are Things that are truly inexplicable. There is a mysterious quality to our lives. And I think as, as 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 things get more desolate in a certain way, you find the light in different in different places. And it can be miraculous. And again, not giving anything away, but there are things that happen in the book where the characters acknowledge that there is no rational explanation. But what they they accept it because it's, it's, it's positive. It's good. Whatever it is, we can't, there's so much that we can't explain. We're so arrogant that we believe we really know just about everything, you know, and it's in truth. It's there's so many things out there that we just don't know and can't explain. And those happen at various points in this, uh, in this book and they happen. It is the tree branch that you can grab onto and you didn't see it was there before, but it's been there the whole time. You
0: know. I'm not. I, I honestly, as I was reading, there were a couple of moments going along where I did one of those things where you shut one eye and like I can't bear to know what's about to happen. You know, and that's a for a book to do that. I, I love reading. I'm a big fan, uh, and yours is definitely a page turner. And it's really intriguing to me that you allow us, the reader, we are we fill in. The scenery. We're the set designers as we're going along. You, you, you are a playwright. You wrote it without any of the real description stuff that that takes place in most fiction books or in any book for that matter. It's all dialogue.
1: It's all dialogue, and uh, nobody should let that intimidate them because it's very clear. It'll take you a couple of pages to get the style of the book, which is there's no. Narrator, there's no one describing what the characters look like. As you say, there's no setting. there's no they can it may come out of the monologues out of the way the people talk. But the people actually don't even talk to each other. It's their remembrance of particular times. and as is true of memory, they have wildly different memories of like the the family dinner, which is the perception of different people and why things happened the way they did at this absolutely grisly family dinner when both factions of the family really want to get together and and um, but i'm always, i'm fascinated by memory by how people remember things differently and mm-hmm. i've been told by some people that i have an extraordinary memory but i actually think that what i have it's not an extraordinary memory is I am very convincing in how I describe things that have happened. So it really seems as if I know so much of what happened because I'm so convincing when I described it, but really my memory is probably no better than anyone else's. Although in writing this book and going back to things that were sort of generated by things in my life, when I started writing those situations, I was flooded by detail and by sensory aspects of the situation. Um,
0: yeah, that that aspect of the book made me laugh out loud a couple, actually laugh out loud a couple of times because I think about my own family and our each of us may be at the exact same event and yet Nobody remembers it the same way, and it's biased toward how are we feel in the moment. Right. And You handle that really well throughout. I, it, you're right. As you begin the book, that it's a particular cadence. I, I found myself the first couple pages. I felt like okay, I have to get into the rhythm of what this feels like, of what conversation feels like, and right. they each of their each character also has their own way of talking that is specific. And that was it was fun. It was as if I was sitting at the table or something, listening. Still very vivid in my mind. I could see everything. It was neat. It was why was that the conscious choice of you doing it that way?
1: Um, wh- what you just said is exactly what Louise, the fourteen-year-old girl, who she, she writes, she this is her project because she notices that her family sort of fragmented at the same time the country was falling apart. And she thought if she talked to everyone in the family, she would figure out what happened to the family. And then she would figure out what happened to the country. And she's not a narrator, but her, her voice is in it. But in terms of why I wrote it that way, um, I think it started out uh, as a cheat because um, I've never written a novel. I've never really written fiction. And so, um, but I've written a lot of plays and I thought I'm going to just, and it was sort of a challenge to myself. I thought, I wonder if I can tell a fully dimensional story without any narrator with just the dialogue of, of different characters. And then it became, I became a little bit obsessed with how to pull it off and what it depended on among other things was that each character have a very very specific voice and a specific take so that you could pick up the book in the middle and say oh that's garrick he is the veteran he can, you know i mean the character's name is there it's not hard it's an easy read once you get into it it's not it's not hard at all but that was that was kind of the challenge the first draft i wrote of this um since I'd never written a novel, I didn't know in terms of word count. I never thought about word count, but I thought, I wonder how long sort of a, you know, an average novel is. Um, And and so I checked it and this novel was so wildly too long, way, way, way too long. So I cut a hundred pages out of it, which is kind of a lot. And um, I cut out some stuff that I love, but I thought, What I want to do is every single speech in this book has to advance the story. And that's why I think the book does have momentum, because there never, I had some great, hilarious detours in this book, and I just cut them out and just kept it going. And then I had some trusted writer friends read it, including um, Russ Woody, Jay Tarsus. And they had, they were, they loved the book, but they had very similar. I always pay attention when people have sort of a similar response. And they thought the be- it was too hard to get into the beginning of the book. And then once you're there, it's great. But um, so I thought I really right up front, I've got to make these characters so clear and so specific and even, be even more clear. Have a, an introduction from Louise that sets up what the book and just really gear it all toward toward clarity because that's i mean that's the only that's the only bump that was the bump that they had and if enough enough really smart people have the same problem then uh i pay attention you know
0: <laughs> yeah and the the pushback you have on louise is fun too at the, the beginning there's there's pushback yeah. and I, it, one of the things that also occurred to me as i was reading is sure everyone is their own slightly unreliable narrator which there's generally someone like that in a story but in truth the person that most of them are unreliable toward is themselves
1: yes yes
0: (laughs) which is that's so human right we lie to ourselves more than we lie to anyone
1: right right um yeah I think I think that's true and they all and, and nobody sets out to be a bad person no, and, and it's very hard for most people to acknowledge when they've done something that's really bad. but there are times in the book where people do acknowledge that they've hurt other people and I think I mean I just found in the writing that that deepened the relationships because it wasn't just I mean this family is selfish in the way that we're all selfish, but there are compassionate There are are compassionate people in the family. And I have to say that for me, you might not have felt the same way, that in a way the most sympathetic character is a conservative character. And it's not – I was really determined this would not be some kind of shrill, you know, left-wing screed because that's not – there's enough out there. I don't don't want to contribute to that, you know. So I I really – that was another thing that was really important to me was – that every character be, be really dimensional, be really round. I mean, that's the thing about playwriting is that the most if a character has four lines, they have to be as fully imagined as the the, the lead character. I mean, in in great plays, that's the, the walk-on character has a a life, a real life that you believe. And I felt like that's what I've got to do with these, with, with these characters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I really pictured it as a play as I was reading along. I could see these sort of, you know, Louise with whomever is talking and then the, you know, the, the stage is dark here and then it, it brightens up and then that happens and then it goes dark again. And then it's, and I just, I could see all of these things going on. It's really quite something.
1: I have to pick your brain at some point because I've been approached about turning it into a play. Oh, please do. Okay, because <laughs> I think it's there, but I'll, I'm just going to tell you I'm divided between having it a play with all these characters and this sort of mosaic, which it is on the page of trusting that all these individual voices come together and create a single story which i which I think it does, and that's and and that is I believe. Achiev- achievable on stage, but then I started thinking there's another way to do it, which is one of the characters having it a two character play between Louise and say paul and it's it's at the you know it's twenty thirty five he is passing on the family story, which is a political story to Louise, so that her generation doesn't do the same thing
0: except for I think as an audience member, you might walk away from that thinking. Well, bias, Paul's biased. What I love about the way you have the interplay between the conversations and the memories is I have to bounce back. I think it's because I have dear, dear friends who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum. And some of the friends that are on my side of the political spectrum say, how can you be friends with somebody like that? And I say, because no matter how foul I think their politics are, I could see beyond that and love the person that isn't that politic. And I think you captured that. And it took a while for some, which I think is so human, for some of the characters to understand that even about themselves. Because I think that they were, uh, as you go along in the beginning of of the story, they are so, one side or the other, it is black and white, and then you have yeah. this m- moment again, not wanting to give anything away, but this moment where suddenly this little eking of gray pops in, <laughs> and you think, Oh, it's just the moment, and then you take it away from us and you make it black and white again, and you think, Oh man, and then you bring it, you know, and that was such a lovely way to do that. And if you have it just from Paul's storytelling I think you will lose I mean, in my personal humble opinion you might lose some of that magic yeah. of, of an audience member going oh well he just thinks that way because it's him
1: right right yeah. right no I think I, I think you're right there's you, you know part of it is just the logistical challenges of getting plays done is yeah. eight characters I mean I originally of course thought of thought can this be a play when I first had this idea but I, I did not want to feel constrained in any way. I did not want to worry about, do I have too many characters? I didn't worry about what the set looks like. I didn't want to worry about, is this character talking too much? Because in the theater, you know, I mean, it's like, there. and lately as a playwright, I have kind of felt these constraints. And it's one of the reasons that I just wanted to like explode out of it. And if a character was going to talk for five pages, Go for it. Have at it. And it was incredibly liberating for me as a writer. It was incredibly exciting. And you know what it felt like was when I first, in my 20s, when I first started writing plays, writing dialogue, and it was really, it was like a narcotic. I just felt like I have to do this. I have to do more of this. And that's kind of how I I feel having written this novel is just Uh, creatively, it just, it is, it it just has excited me so much because you can do anything, you know, you don't have to, there are all kinds of things you don't need to worry about. And among other things, you don't need to uh, worry about, you know, getting the right actors and get, I mean, I love all that stuff, and I will continue to do that. But this was, this for me has been a really special experience to just dive in with nobody telling me what to do. And nobody read the book until I'd finished it, you know, a very lengthy first draft, you know. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel lucky. I feel really lucky to have hit on this because I'd always had a vague notion, like I'd really like to write a novel. But I didn't do it until I was so driven by it and driven by this idea that I had to do it. It's, it's sort of the thing of putting it off until it's more uncomfortable not to do it than to do it. and then writing fast, just writing as fast as possible.
0: Was there a voice in your head at all that that tried to keep you from going too far from the conservative point of view, thinking, okay, other people are going to read that that maybe are not of your political bent did you did that cross your mind or did you just go nope just gonna write it and see what happens let the chips fall
1: I would like to say that I'm just gonna write it and see where the uh, let the chips fall where they may but I don't I'm probably not that evolved a human being (laughs) I think we we all have these voices politically uh, right now politically we have these voices in in our heads and I was very I really focused on making all the characters full and and, and, uh, and resonant but I don't I mean, I think that I succeeded up to a point, but I think there might have been that voice that was pulling me back a little bit. The place where the voice there was no voice pulling me back was in the rants that Paul has in the <laughs> in the <room> house, <laughs> And that's actually where the book started with those rants, because I I was just like so enraged by so much that was going on. And I started writing. This is just going to give a little bit away, but it doesn't give too much away. I wrote the rant about every, every time the great leader lies, his breasts grow an inch. And so, so, so I, I wrote that and I sent it around to friends. And they said, oh, my God, this is so great. This is hilarious. You should do a whole book of these. And I thought, I really don't want to because for me personally, I feel like we're kind of beyond political satire. In a way, satire can be very provocative, but now it almost feels like it normalizes it. You know, it almost feels like it's like I'm not into that at all. And I thought it actually is more devastating if it is what goes on in a family in this world rather than me writing these extreme rants. And so, the, but I did have to find a place for the rants in the book. So there are, I think, five of them.
0: <laughs> I feel like real life has superseded anything that the onion could ever come up with at this point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so extreme and how we process this every day. We have so much to process every single day and so much that's so shocking. And then a few years ago, it would be unimaginable. And it just happens. And that's why I think our sense of time gets distorted because somebody will say, oh, that thing about the taxes came out last week and say, last week, I thought that was last summer. You know, it's like so much has been full. But I don't know about you with with the pandemic and the summer, it felt like a summer that didn't happen. And it feels weirdly like time is hurtling past at warp speed. And at the same time, we're stuck in place. And it's like this weirdly dysfunctional place. That's a real distortion of time.
0: Yeah, I and, would agree with that completely.
1: Yeah, and I, and I'm interested in how different people handle it. You know, because I think I think there's a real. It's it's really possible to go into a bit of a dream state and realize that you haven't done anything for four months. And I understand that. You know, I I have I have had. Exactly the opposite reaction since since the pandemic started, I have been on this um probably uh, not completely mentally healthy um, very rigid regimen every day. I get up at five o'clock in the morning and I write for three hours and I take an hour off and then I've been co-producing this documentary film and i work on I start working on that. and I think the reason I do it this way is, to keep, <laughs> to keep the dogs at bay, <laughs> you know? So I don't really have to think. I I, I, can't, I I don't want to spend the day tortured by what's going on. So I fill it with my own work, basically.
0: Well, it's I do want to talk about the documentary. I think it's interesting to be working. Uh, it's on the, the Barragans, right? Yes. And yes. it's got to be so surreal to be working on a documentary about them during this time.
1: It, it is so extraordinarily inspiring. I mean, they, they really, uh, they lived it. I, I mean, they were, you know, two, uh, two Catholic priests committed uh, to, to nonviolent resistance. One of them uh, fell in love with a nun. They got married. They were excommunicated. They had three children. But their entire lives were, really, it was a deep commitment to peace. And uh I've gotten to know uh their daughter. And she she has a wonderful book out, and and uh um it, and she writes about how when she was little, she was the firstborn, when she was little, her parents alternated when they would go to jail. I mean, going to jail was not like, oh no, I got caught. It was it was hearts and minds, it was commitment on a very deep level. I find it, I find it so moving and so inspiring because we're living in a world where um you know uh, the, the the brave step is to sign an online petition you know and it's like people feel like they've really done something or and i'm not making fun of it but well i kind of have but writing a lot of postcards and stuff like that, i applaud all of that but that's that's not exactly uh, and marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge.
0: Although I do feel that people are rising up and marching and even in the face knowing they're going to get tear gassed and bulleted and and rubber yes. bulleted. I,
1: I really I, I couldn't understand it. Not that I was out there, but during the first three years. I couldn't understand why there was there was relatively little protest. I mean, to me that's been one of the heartening things. There have been some no.
0: Yeah, I think it's because of what you spoke to earlier and what we were saying about the placation. I think when it's hard to get up off the couch when your needs are being met. Even if those needs we we've been very selfish for a long time. And I do think that people are starting to wake up and go, Oh wait, I'm not I'm not just I'm not just here by myself on this couch. There's there's all sorts of people on this couch with me. We've got yeah. to we've got to stand up for each other.
1: Yes. Yes. Good title for your next book. It's hard to get up off the couch. Right? I mean I mean, I think that's the time we're living in. It's too if you have enough money to get by comfortably, reasonably comfortably, it is hard to get up off the couch. And I applaud the people who are now. It just, it took, it, well, it really, it really took Black Lives Matter. It took, it took that and that sort of exacerbated.
0: And look how fast it was vilified.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It became, it was, it it called a a terrorist organization.
0: Which says to me that it's actually making a difference because they, they wouldn't be coming out so hard against that unless it was freaking them out enough to go, oh shit, maybe they're going to wake each other up you know?
1: You're right. I mean, but, but it's, it it's it, to, to, to demonize any, any movement is to fear it. I think, you know, I mean, yeah. if they ignored it, then, then it would mean it's, it's not consequential. I think it's hugely consequential.
0: As to say, you have a, there's a quote, uh, that you said, uh, there are no safe choices.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I, I don't think there are, I mean, um, you know, I teach at, uh, Columbia in the in the graduate film program, which I, I love, it. I love these students. They're so great. Um, and there's, you know, there's this whole sense of uh, people wanting a safe space and, um, and not at Columbia, but, at, 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 you know, you read about these things where there are all these protests of uh, speakers who are going to be disturbing and challenge people's view of the world and think, well, why else would you go to college unless right. you were so I've had this thing about there, there, there is only one safe space, actually. And that's, that's your coffin when you die. And up until then, everything is a risk. Everything is a challenge, whether, whether it's a relationship, having kids, getting married, buying a house, finding a job, finding what, the meaning in your life, whatever it is. All of it is an enormous risk. And the idea of, of playing it safe, I mean, we're on the planet for this long. I mean, the idea of playing it safe, whats not, it, it, what, do you, what do you get from that? And I feel like there are really positive things coming out of this extreme time that we're living with. And I think a lot of people are coming to that conclusion that there are things that are worth the risk. There are, there are, there are things that are worth putting your ass on the line for. And also, I feel like, at this time with, you know, in this, you know, the storm of politics and and the pandemic and everything, in a way, it's stripping a lot of things away. And there are things that are very painful about that. But I think there are things that are actually very healthy about that, too. I don't know about you, but I find that what sort of gets revealed is who matters in your life. Who really matters in your life and what matters in your life? And it, it, it can be very painful, but I think ultimately it's very healthy.
0: I agree with you, and the, there are benefits to all of this insanity and in that the isolation, which is I think very hard for a lot of people. The thing of it is it's it's easy to ignore all your stuff if you are constantly in a barra the cacophony of life. And it, the din of it, it, it's all so loud that you never get quiet enough to hear your own thoughts. And that can be quite soothing for a lot of people. And now that has been stripped away, as you say, and we are left with, how do I feel right now? What am I thinking right now? There's no noise.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> There's no noise except for the thoughts in my head and for, unfortunately, some that's a maddening brink that they step off of, and it's the, the I'm I know that the suicide rate has gone up during this time. Yeah, um, and for others, it makes them very angry. Right, they're lashing out because it's so much easier to touch, you know, to to touch that person's problem, what they've done, how they've hurt me, what's wrong with that, instead of touching, why am I hurting?
1: Right, right. We're going through an enormous trauma. And we're going through this trauma together. We hope together. And you know, there are people I don't know who's none of my friends have said this lately, but the idea that um, things will at some point snap back to normal, and it's like you know what, normal disappeared in the rearview mirror. <laughs> I was
0: just gonna and, say, I don't know about that.
1: <laughs> you know, we can't even see it anymore, and it's gonna be. It, it'll be. You know, what it will be is what we make it what we what we invented and the the pandemic will end and the politics will end will change and then it's what 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 do we do and i think that's both daunting and exciting i mean it's very exciting this is an incredibly exciting time to be alive i mean it's incredibly exciting and for that reason it's also daunting in many ways and you just want things to kind of calm down yeah you know, I I, I uh, I'm in this uh, group uh, called the Writers Guild Initiative. We started it like 13 years ago, and our mission is to give a voice to populations that aren't being heard. So we started like with veterans, and and but we work with all these different groups, like exonerated death row prisoners and uh, LGBT asylum seekers from Uganda. I mean, the most fabulous people, and and the Dreamers DACA recipient, extraordinary. People, but their voice is just not being heard. So we do these writing workshops and get them writing. And it's just it's it, these are, it's not about becoming a professional writer. It's about finding your voice. And during this time, we're doing it on Zoom. And I mean, we always traveled around the country, did these workshops. We're doing it on Zoom. And the thing that's been interesting to me is it works. I didn't think it would work in the same way, but Zoom is not. You know, it's not it's not the optimum, but it's the best we've got. And when you're in a situation with people who have this opportunity, this brief opportunity, three hours on a Saturday morning, three hours on the next Saturday morning, the work that comes out is amazing. And, and uh, what made me think of this is we're working with nurses in New York and they're, for, the, for, the, for the most part, they're suffering from PTSD based on their work during the pandemic and you think these are of course the real heroes the the the, the paramedics the, all, the doctors all the, all these people and um it's they're they're living an extreme example of what we're all going through which is we're all going through this trauma, and I think it's, I, I don't know what, if there's any precedent for it, is it, Is it—is it what people go through in wartime? Is it, I mean, what is it when a whole population experiences it?
0: Yeah, it is. I, I do think that it, it probably feels a lot like being on the front line of a war.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. And the the slap in the face, I imagine every day of seeing those that that are affronted by the idea of wearing a mask and, and then they're yeah. on the front lines dealing with the aftermath. Yeah. Gotta be, that's gotta be, there's, there's so many levels of wrong with that and, and how that must hurt on a deep, on a visceral level, but on, with the level of exhaustion and that they're putting their own lives on the line and, yeah. and are dying. Yeah. I mean, and are getting sick.
1: You know? Yeah. Well, in New York when in, in the spring when it hit, it's such an extraordinary level. I mean, I live just north of the city, but in the city, I mean, friends were saying to you know, going out on the street and the people who weren't wearing masks and these, you know, the 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 doctors, the nurses, the paramedics, everybody struggling and fighting to keep up, and the people sort of blithely going about their life. And what I don't understand is this notion of the infringement of Personal freedom. I mean, what is the personal freedom to infect other people? I mean, it's just, it I think that was
0: actually propaganda that was was carefully planned by people that probably are not big fans of America. And I think that they, they started that disinformation campaign very specifically, to see, to see how far it could go and also to probably hurt. It's a great, it's a great warfare. Wow. I have not
1: thought about that. And I consider myself a deeply, deeply paranoid person. But I think that you have put me to shame in the paranoia department.
0: Is it paranoia? I don't know. I don't
1: think it is. As you say it, it's like, why? Of course. It
0: doesn't take much to get that sort of thing going. And then once it goes, it catches like wildfire. And they only need a certain amount of the population to rise up in arms against the fact that it was made political who that that's um
1: yeah yeah that's some
0: ridiculousness the level of that and and you know oh it's about your freedom and oh you're right and it's just about considering other people right it's it's (laughs) it's a it's very meta to me that the whole anti-mask really does speak to that level of well if it doesn't affect me then okay who cares yeah, literally everything else: healthcare, women's rights, uh, you know, trans rights, LBGTQ rights, people of color rights—just all of that. It's you might as you could line it up like a Venn diagram or something to, to 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 show how it is representative of that same feeling. And I know people listening might be like, "Well, I'm not against you know such and such and so and so." No, not actively, but there is a passivity to it
1: yeah yeah
0: as you're walking by the the guy on the street that's begging for money or is bedraggled and is you know in his own filth and just sitting there you you know nothing about that person and yet you and you walk on by that person might be a veteran that person is certainly somebody's child it could be somebody's parent you know it's it's that level of compartmentalization yeah. that I find deeply saddening and, and fascinating all at the same time. But yeah, I, I was <laughs> on that whole tangent. I do think that that disinformation campaign was super strategic
1: and it, it got
0: a lot done. Look at how many people are dead.
1: I think you're really smart. I, I, I really, I, I mean, I just, it makes perfect sense what you're saying. And also just the, you know, uh, whatever the definition of collusion is but that going on um it's uh, of course i of course i i think i think that's absolutely right and it makes it so diabolical because it only takes certain people to lead the way and the, the, you know the the people who went and, and took over the state house in in michigan with with you know with, with the, their ar15s and all this stuff they they're not they're not in on that level of it. They're on the level of my personal freedoms are being taken away.
0: They got manipulated, is yeah. what happened. They got manipulated into thinking that they're standing up for something that has nothing to do with, you know.
1: Right, right. I saw one one picture of him. One guy had he had it he had his gun and he also was wearing a mask. And I thought, you know, this is a little bit contradictory. And then I thought he was probably leaving the house. And, and his wife said, Honey, you've got to wear your mask.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: That's my like gone here.
0: Such know? a bizarre time. A person could not write. I mean, we, you couldn't write this. You could not be in a writer's room and pitch this story. People would, would you'd never work
1: again. You <laughs> wouldn't, because it's so, it, it, it is, not, well, the, the problem is that fiction has to be believable. And life really is, and life now is not even a little bit believable. Uh, and, and and again, just in, in terms of it happened here, it's why the family had to be so real. Because if the family was whacked, if it was satirically written or heightened in a, in a way that made it sort of funny in a certain way, but not believable, the book would not have worked at all. Yeah, I agree, because the family is so real, and it allows the politics to be. As lunatic as 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 it is, I, I mean.
0: To that point, have you had people who are more conservative or even super conservative read it and have comments? Have you had any feedback on that side?
1: Um, that's a good question. Uh, there are a couple people um, that have um, that have just sent me emails and 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 said they they like the book. I will I will admit that. Most of the people that I've talked to, and I've talked to a lot of people who've read the book, I would say are on, on, on the left. Um, and, and I think that, but I, I, I don't, I mean, I know a lot more liberals than, than, uh, than conservative people. Um, I, I really don't know, I, I would love to talk to more people who, conservatives who, who have read the book because I don't think it does a disservice to conservatives at all. No. No. I think it takes and,
0: and that's like part that. of the rhetoric, right, that we're hearing. That the thing is, is this the great leader is not conservative, certainly not Republican. Certainly has gone way past any of that. Just like in now in real life, any of my conservative friends they I imagine they see, most of them at least, that this is, this has nothing to do with politics anymore. This is far, this is far beyond politics.
1: That's interesting. Do they, so they don't defend what's going on. And
0: I think, in their own, again, it's that being able to compartmentalize yeah. that, that that does happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, you were talking earlier, you mentioned selfishness, and, and, and people often talk about greed. But I actually think selfishness, I mean, they're related, but I think selfishness is more operative in what's going on, that, that a lot of people, it's not like they're greedy to get a lot more, but they're selfish in terms of not reaching out to other people and just taking care of themselves. And if they're okay and their family is okay, then that's, they're not going to think beyond that. And I think that that's what the president counts on. Is that if he can make enough of those people believe that he's taking care of them and he's taking care of the economy and all of that stuff, then he's going to be okay. Um, and I mean, one of the reasons that we're, it's going to be a long journey out of here is forty percent of the country buys that, and so or is willing to vote for that, and that's a that's a scary number. It's why it's why I think that. Um, the book I mean, I'm obviously, you know, wanted to get it out before uh, November 3rd. But I think it's going to be every bit as operative after, after election day, because I think what, what the book is about is a family enduring an, a prolonged crisis, an extremely chaotic time and that time is not going to end regardless of who wins the election and and so so i have the sense that that's what we are all going to be up against for a long time the pandemic we're going to get past the pandemic but it's finding our way i don't i'm not even going to say back to something it's finding our way forward to a way that we can we can live together
0: yeah you know yeah it's an interesting time i mean there there is it's it's hard not to look toward <laughs> what is it the looking into the abyss and the abyss stares back at you is it the looking into the dystopian possibilities of all the of all the writers of the writers that came before you that you know the the Bradburys and the you know Asimovs and the right. you know and uh Vonnegut you know they We've they've been saying we've all been saying it is all there. It's and it's not like we're learning, it seems, anything.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Well, right now, it seems as if we've unlearned an awful lot of an awful lot of things. But I think you mentioned all those writers and I think that writers and of course, I'm totally biased. But I think writers are the essential workers because a democracy depends on the truth. Once you lose the truth, you lose the democracy. And, and I think that writers, it's one of the things, and it actually does, I'm not going to give it away, but happens in the book, is the assault on the media and, and, uh, and, and how that manifests itself and how it, it, it becomes a matter of, is it courage or is it foolhardy to keep telling the truth? when you are going to pay and your family is going to pay and people are not paying attention and it becomes and then it becomes much more about entertainment than uh than than the the truth but i think of everything that is in danger now i think the fact that we have lost generally accepted uh, objective truth is the single greatest loss because it's like trust in a relationship once the trust is gone it's a really hard road to get it back and i think now it's one of it's one of the diabolical parts of the last 4 years is that the truth has become fragmented to the point where we don't we don't accept basic facts and we've been taught that right from the inauguration, which was the biggest inauguration in history. You know, all of these things which were demonstrably false, but right. that was a very calculated way to present the world as it is now. That you, this is the, the the truth is what I tell you the truth is. And there the fact that enough people buy that is is truly scary because there's no now, there is no one source of information that we all look to and there it's it's all in pieces and there are all these different narratives and people use this the fact of no objective truth is used in all different kinds of ways and 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 I think I actually I think in general journalists have done an amazing job but I think that there is still this idea that um, it's, you know, on one hand this, and on the other hand this, and it's giving, uh, you know, this false equivalency to some things that are truly crazy. I mean, QAnon is now raging, not just through the, the country, but through the world.
0: And, yeah. And uh, there are senators who are QAnon. I've, I've tried to get a QAnon person on the show. They don't seem to want to come on the show. I would love to have a conversation. Uh, That would be
1: great. Well, what about one of them that's a politician because they're going to want to get...
0: That's true. That's a good point.
1: Because I think that, I mean, they got to be bold to stand up and say that they're QAnon and they're running for state representative.
0: The the few QAnon people I've talked with... It seems to me that they don't even know their own history. They don't even really understand where it started, who started it. The, the basis of the Soros thing is, is rooted in anti-Semitism, they, 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 this whole other level. And QAnon now is these hippie moms who are peace and love, and they think that they're saving you know, the world from pedophilia, which uh, who doesn't want to stop that?
1: Yeah, that's a really controversial stance, you know, to come out boldly against pedophilia.
0: Right, but they don't, they're not worried about facts. They're just like, oh, Tom Hanks eats babies and after he, you know, gets their adrenal, you know, all that stuff. It's like, I'm, I'm sorry, of all the people that you could pick, you pick Tom Hanks because that woman said that when she was a kid, you know, this thing happened to her. And it's, you know, let's let's take into account some mental illness and yeah. that people can save things now and facts truly don't matter.
1: That's it. Facts don't matter. I'm interested in the fact that uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. is... Playing that it's place.
0: alive and well. Yeah, but they keep moving the goalposts. You know, I had a woman on the show who used to be Jehovah's Witness and, and I talked to her and said, you know, in the... In the Jehovah's Witness zeitgeist, you know, there's been many an Armageddon set. The date is here, the date is here, and they keep moving the goalpost. And the QAnon people as well, the goalpost keeps moving. Now, to me, if you're a critical thinker, that right there is a huge red flag. However, they just it's a lot of word salad. I follow some of the Twitter accounts of the QAnon stuff and there's a lot of word salad going on. And you you keep moving, like supposedly JFK Jr. was going to show up in Dallas on October 17th and become Trump's true running mate and all this Stuff and when it doesn't happen, or that Tom Hanks is now a robot Tom Hanks or a clone, and the real Tom Hanks was assassinated at Gitmo, or you know, all this it's, it's like, just please just look at the logic for one second. Is it more likely that that's wrong, or is it more likely that this surely bad things happen in the world and kids get hurt? but the truth of the matter is they're getting hurt in your own family.
1: Right, right, right. That's where it's happening. Well, I think that this, the, the conspiracy, I mean, that's sort of an amalgam of a lot of different conspiracy theories. And I think that the conspiracy theories now, I mean, you know, when you, when the when the president is actually spewing these conspiracy theories out, that's that's a terrible thing. But I think in general, conspiracy theories come about the people who are attracted to them want an explanation for yes. why their lives have not worked out the the way they wanted them to, yes. and I think it's it's fulfilling something. Now I don't know. I, I'm fascinated that you you definitely have to get a and person on, um, but I I'm fascinated by the whole thing that it is gone beyond the united states it's you know it's all over the place
0: well the internet and, that's the internet for you right then yeah uh,
1: but it doesn't matter who q is at this point yeah it could, uh, it could be anybody it could be you know
0: who was it that said when the when the atomic bomb when they finished was it Oppenheimer? somebody said i i am the maker i am uh, i'm the destroyer of worlds Oh, sure. yeah,
1: yeah. The,
0: the internet is not too far behind the destroyer of worlds.
1: I, I think you're right. I think you're you know? right. But but this, the fact that it is sort of gone, QAnon is sort of going mainstream. Yeah. I just wonder what the point is where it turns from... Like, right now, it's it's reported as this lunatic fringe, and it's just sure. crazy. <laughs>
0: it's I have a theory about it, as far as the uh, human trafficking angle. One of the largest, uh, granted, the United States has a problem with human trafficking. It is a humongous. It's a global problem. It's a billion dollar industry. Uh, and we're not just talking kids. we're just talking across the board. And uh, Russia is, in fact, a big problem with human trafficking and pornography that is very violent like snuff film pornography and and just really intense horrible stuff and if i am operating those types of places what's the best way to get the heat off of me but to create these specters that people are going to run around chasing because I have to follow up on stories. If I'm the head of the human trafficking and I get a phone call that there's a kid trapped in a Wayfair locker being sold on the internet through Wayfair.com, I have to follow up on that. I can't ignore it. And so I'm over there chasing these QAnon. Oh, there's, there's, it's happening over here. And meanwhile, my global enterprise is doing great because nobody's paying any attention to me. I've created this red herring over here.
1: Right. Right. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Now I have heard, you probably know that when people get into it, it's almost like a video game that you can go deeper into different levels of it. And
0: they say it's a rabbit hole. Yeah. They just keep watching more videos that speak to what they're, what they're being, their brain is being trained to believe.
1: And so, but, and, and so there are people who sort of, Dabble in it, and then, but it's. I think it's sort of hard to just dabble in it because it becomes weirdly compelling to people, and it's sort of one of these things where you want to know how deep it goes. You want to know what the connections are. It's on
0: all the levels, right? It it releases serotonin. Oh my god, I'm going to help stop a global, you know, pedophile ring. Oh my gosh, I'm 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 helping where my life, like you said, where my life has not really had a lot of meaning now it does so it's releasing that it's also uh touching our shadow side i could never be that person but i'm gonna watch this video that's why horror films are so popular and and violent films are so popular because we're allowed to be armchair to these disturbing things without actually touching it without doing it you know It's, it's our avatar and uh these these rabbit holes that people go down i mean they, they talk about it did you watch the um the social dilemma
1: yes yeah yeah,
0: yeah. they talk about that like oh, we we are creating these algorithms that we pay attention to what you're watching and we will just keep upping the ante yeah. it becomes its own pornography they're addicted to that
1: right right it's ha- and, and and the extent to which behavior can be controlled, which, 100%. I mean, that's, that's the scariest thing to me, the extent to which politics can become about the algorithm.
0: I don't and think Trump actually true. believes the Q stuff. He believes there are people out there that think he's some sort of a savior figure, and he loves that.
1: That, that plays to his sweet spot. Oh, is, in in, in yeah. India, this guy who worshipped Trump, and he... Yes. I mean, How crazy is that? And if Trump had known about it, I'm sure he would have brought the guy to, to you know, had him sleep in the Lincoln bedroom or something. But you know, he, but the guy had a had a statue. He commissioned a statue of Trump. And when Trump got COVID, he couldn't eat, and and he he just was in such a state of despair that he died. He died. I mean, and this yes. is what, this whole thing is. Um, the cultish aspect of it is really scary.
0: But you can't tell people in a cult that they're in a cult, right? right. Look at the right. people that have dealt with cults. They've written, there's so many books about it, of trying, you know, the Children of God cult or, you know, all these, all, all these situations. Jonestown, the survivor, there's a few survivors of Jonestown. Yeah. The, the reprogramming that has to be done. Right. It's right. insane how easily manipulated we are.
1: Have you have you uh, have you uh, follow, uh, followed uh, the Nexium cult at all?
0: I haven't watched. I, I know about it. I know this the story, the underlying story, and all that. I have not watched the vow. I know that there's a documentary about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think is, I, I mean, I was I was absolute. I found it absolutely compelling because it's. People that it's us, it's people, you know, it's intelligent people and some of them quite successful who went to a meeting, went to some meetings and really felt that this workshop could enhance their lives. And and, and it's, it's just extraordinary because you realize I always, I always felt like if you're smart and you have a sense of humor, you are immune to being in a cult. And that is absolutely not true, and I know that from people who, who, that I know have been in cults. That it, 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 there's no—I don't know if there's any way to inoculate yourself against being in a cult, because some of these people felt like, "Wow, I'd be friends with these people," you know?
0: Yeah, so. it, people feel like they have a sense of purpose; they they matter; they're they're doing something for the greater good. There's there's a lot of of feel good brain stuff happening in these situations that when as we spoke to before when it's presented like things that maybe you would never have even thought about doing way back now it's like oh well okay that doesn't seem so bad i guess and all these other people around me are okay with it so yeah it's fine and we're all heading toward this light and self-actualization and that feels good and
1: it, it all feels good, except the branding. Yeah, the, the women were branded, which is so—that was so horrific.
0: Was but
1: to get to that point, you had to—you had to agree to a lot of different things along the way.
0: The line, as the line keeps moving, if you keep moving with it, eventually, you're going to offer yourself up in any way, shape, or form.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Now, if this really is a cult around the president, how are people deprogrammed from it?
0: I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. The thing that I find fascinating too is like we have guns and we're gonna do this stuff. Uh, that's a lot of bully energy. And to be to be honest, um, of the bullies you've known in your life, there are a lot of blustering. There are unfortunately yeah. now a combination of people who are mentally ill and bullying energy, and they will take it to an extreme. And so that makes me nervous. Uh, but a lot of really great, normal, healthy people uh, also have gone so hopefully, <laughs> I don't know, it's going to it's gonna be a little nutty, I think, for a short while. Or maybe yeah. it won't. Maybe it's just going to sort of be that thing where everybody wakes up and, and it's a new day and they look around and... The spell is broken. It's hard yeah. to say.
1: Yeah, I don't think the spell will be broken by the things that we think w- would have broken it for us. For example, you know, because those have happened
0: already. So basically yeah. Basically,
1: yeah, It's going to be. It's going to be something very different than that. I don't. I don't really know what it is. But I'm not. I shouldn't say this, but I'm not particularly concerned about a so-called coup and the reason is it if you think of you think of this, this sort of the strong man in the world that that he admires they are really smart and they are really focused and everything and he's essentially lazy and ignorant and entitled and the what goes into a coup is a lot of planning a lot of detail work you know a certain amount of imagination kind of an iron will we haven't seen any evidence of any of that it would be just like mm. I, I mean he's surrounded by people who have that yeah he doesn't have any he, he doesn't yeah he has the attention span like a chickadee i mean it's,
0: it's, it's one of those things where you know it's bad when somebody goes he's no hitler <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we got nothing to worry about. I feel so much better. About
0: it. I know. <laughs> All right, let's che- let's move to a little bit. You are a big sports fan. Baseball
1: is yes. On on uh, my wall, that's where I worship. That is uh, Fenway Park in Boston. And you grew up in Massachusetts. Grew Up in Massachusetts, yes. Yeah. This is the first summer I've not gone to a major league baseball game.
0: Did you watch it on the on the on the zooms or on the television or however they did it?
1: You know, I actually didn't because I felt like they handled it all wrong in terms majorly, I won't go into it, but I just, and and the Red Sox made it easy by having a very good amateur team this year that wasn't really worth following. So I didn't, this is the first time I really haven't paid attention. I hope to be back next year.
0: It'll all come back. Things will come back. Uh, The rounding third is, is that, that, is that a play?
1: That's a play. And then it was a movie and it's, it's, yeah. Little League coaches, and one of them believes that we live in this competitive culture and you owe it to the kids on the team to teach them to be winners. And the other coach believes that childhood is this precious time and all of the competition, everything could wait. You're going to face that down the line. And I wrote this play because I was coaching Little League and I realized that I actually was both of those that I was, when I was the assistant coach, I was very nurturing and we're, we're just here to have fun. And then when I took over as coach, I, it was like, my voice changed. I was, there was this urgency about how, what we have to do to win, you know, and my son, I was coaching my son, which is a challenge. And, and, uh, and so um, I realized that the, I really strongly believe two irreconcilable points of view. And so I wrote the play to try to figure that, figure that out. Um, And it's, it does, you know, and and again, it's like extremely personal because it's uh, my brother's playing, all my friends, all this little league and stuff. And it's all of that stuff. And after I wrote the play, I talked to a psychologist and he said, every boy, and I'm sure it's true of of girls too, but he was talking about little league, every boy, who played little league baseball has one traumatic moment that they live with the rest of their life. Like Because it's very, you know, it's like a team sport, but it's pitcher against batter and all the parents are there. And it's like a time in your life where you're very vulnerable, but as, as a boy, you're, you, you don't want to show that you're vulnerable. So that's what the play was. And it was just the two coaches and there were, all the kids were uh, imaginary characters. And the the greatest compliment I got was a little kid came up to me after the show was done in New York. And he said, at the end of the play, why did only the coaches come out? Why didn't the little kids come out? Because the kids had taken on this life. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Man, I wish this kid wrote for the New York Times. You know, he totally, <laughs> he totally got the play.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they made the movie was called Benched.
1: It was called Benched, yes.
0: And yes. I was per- in my humble opinion, I thought a perfect casting of the two coaches.
1: Oh, oh, oh yeah. And it was a blast. We shot it in uh, we shot it in Nashville. And uh, it was yeah, it was it was just a great experience. Um, yeah. yeah, so that was yeah, that was of, of all the plays I've done, that's the one. That continues well pre-pandemic. It's the one that got done gets done the most. You need two good actors and a duffel bag of equipment, and it was done off Broadway, and it can be done in basements, and I mean, it can be done anywhere. So it gets it's get it gets done a lot.
0: Do you prefer writing that type of play that can be very bare bones? And
1: I've sort you know I've moved more and more toward that. Um, I just feel like I want the work to ride on the language, um, rather than you know. I think in the theater, there's a you know, there's more, and more, there's been more and more emphasis on sets and sort of lavish productions, and I'm not really very interested in that. I just find like when I go to the theater, it's the it's the characters and the language that are going to pull me in. So that's a that was a really stripped-down play, and I I, I did another play called Below the Belt that was three men, um, and it was. Very, very bare bones, and uh, they're they're working. They're Americans working in a in a distant land where nobody else speaks English, and so they are completely dependent on each other. But they're at slightly different positions on the food chain. One is the boss, ones, but you know, and so they have this tremendous need to connect. But when they reveal something of themselves it invariably gets used against them in some way or another. So it's a very complicated triangle of uh, of how men relate to each other and how men work together. Interesting. It, it, it was done. I, I actually wrote it after working. It was based on a television show, Work writing a, a TV show, but I didn't want to write a play about show business. So I wrote their job is checking the work that comes out of a factory. So they don't even really, they're not producing the work. They're checking the work. Um, so it was, it was a pretty interesting play. It gets done. It got done in Europe a lot more than the U.S. Because in the in the U.S., they, people thought it was a bit surreal. I mean, it was very funny, but they thought. And uh, like it, in Germany, it had something like sixty productions, and it was they took it as absolutely real life. <laughs>
0: Were you raised up on plays? Did your family go to the theater and
1: Well, I had an aunt who was an actress and a director in in Worcester, and so we always went to see her plays. And my father joined uh, the Holden Players Club and, and he he was, he was he was he was very shy and he wanted to sort of deal with his shyness, so he acted in these productions and my job was to cue him on his lines i would so he would learn his lines and he uh he he was in a play where he got shot and he had to fall down you know and so i would teach him stuff like that when i was a little kid so i would feel very connected to these productions so it was that kind of thing it was going to you know not going to broadway it was going to really community theater local theater In Massachusetts, which I still and I still remember those plays extremely well.
0: I think community theater is it's so important.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, people have this you know, I I feel the same way about writing that people have this notion of like, how do I get an agent kind of thing? But I mean, I I think as and part of it is the work that I do with the Writers Guild Initiative, is it is such potentially such a powerful part of anyone's life and it's sort of i look at it as kind of a daily meditation it's just that is your time and that is how you can discover what you you know what you believe about the world and it's also uh it's also in a lot of cases proven to be more effective therapy than talk therapy we don't look at the work we do with with these uh different people as therapy we're not therapists but they will tell us what, that it's been incredibly therapeutic to be, have an opportunity to simply write. And we have all these writing exercises and we take them through the writing exercise. But it's not about being a professional. And as you say, about community theater, it's like acting is like, I mean, acting is, I have such admiration for actors, for going in and auditioning and everything that you have to do. But acting, just acting to express something, to find something in yourself, That's a totally great thing.
0: Yeah, I say as when you approach television writing, did you keep that in your brain about how a play plays out? A teleplay, obviously, is there's I think that I imagine there's something specific to writing television where in your mind you have to know, oh, people are going to be watching this flat screen, and the characters really have to come alive to make up for that.
1: Yeah, it's a very you know I like it. I like the it's a very rigid form because you're writing a story that has to fit into half an hour or an hour. It's a little bit looser now on you know on cable, but um, it's a it's a pretty rigid form. And I always looked looked at that as a challenge of how do you tell this story in this amount of time? And there's a real there's there's a real craft to it. I've ultimately come to the conclusion that all of this stuff comes down to the same thing, which is how do you tell a story? I mean, because I've written musicals and working on this documentary, I've never worked on a documentary. And it's like, wow, how do we tell the story of the Barragans? And it's like, well, ultimately it's not that different than if I were going to write a play about it or write a novel about it. It's, it's how, how does this story play out? And uh, so tel- but television is interesting in that you're usually if you're on staff of a, of a television show they're not your characters they're somebody else's characters and it's finding you know it's figuring out how to write those characters and kind of make them your own. And also with uh, with most television it's it's kind of a replicating machine. It's got you know whatever happens in that half hour or that hour, you're kind of back to the beginning the next episode, you know? So it's, I mean, I have great respect for it. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a challenging form to tell stories in that way. That's how I, that's how I met Russ Woody was writing, writing television.
0: Yeah. He's great. He's a great one. Was he on Molly Dodd with you? Um,
1: he was not, I worked on Molly Dodd in, uh, in New York. And, uh, I think he might have been honored in LA, and then we worked on shows after that. But I, but Molly Dodd was actually the first show that I, uh, that I the first television show I worked on. And uh, my my wife was a big fan of Molly Dodd, and I had never watched it. And I got a call that Jay Tarsus wanted me to, he had seen one of my plays, and he thought I'd be good for the show, and he wanted to interview me. So um since I hadn't seen the show, I just asked my wife what it was about. And she said, Well, it's about a you know, single woman, uh, you know, divorced, still kind of in love with her ex-husband. And so I went into this uh interview with Jay. I'd never met him before. And he said, What did you what did you think of the show? And I said, I, I love the show. I love the show, what you've done with the single woman and the, the husband and everything. And so he kind of smelled a rat and he said. Who's your favorite character? And I said, well, honestly, you've woven such a rich tapestry. It would be criminal to pull on one of the strings. And so then he, he knew that I was lying. He said, he said, you haven't seen the show, have you? I said, absolutely, I have seen the show. And he said, uh, what did you think of the character of Jimmy? Uh, and I said, honestly, Jimmy was not in any of the episodes that I saw. And there were other people in the room And they were just quietly horrified at this person coming in and just lying so blatantly. But I figured I was in so deep that I sort of like followed the Lenny Bruce dictum, which is your wife catches you in bed. You just deny it. Just deny it. Even if, you know, so I just. You
0: could be a politician.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So I so he really tried to break me. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't break. I just stuck to it. So finally, he said, I knew it was going to go either all one way or all the other. And he said, he said listen, I want you to write an episode of the show, but you have to promise me something. And I said, what? And he handed me these two videotapes of the show. and He said, you have to watch these so you know what the show is that you're writing. And I looked at them and this is when I possibly overplayed my hand. I looked at them. And I said, these, I've seen these. Okay. But I will watch them again. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so it, it was probably, you know, it, everything that you could possibly do wrong for an interview. I did. He is now, of course, one of my great, great, great friends. I mean, I love Jay and I love working with Jay and there's no one, I've ever worked with who is more generous to other writers. And that's how uh, that's how Russ and I met was was working on shows with Jay. But it was, you know, a lot of writers, it's just natural that people kind of circle the wagons or they're, you know, whatever it is. But he's I've collaborated with him a lot. And it is it is one of the great joys of my life. To yeah, family.
0: Russ speaks very highly of him as well, and has told a couple hilarious stories, including one where he's in a closet, going through base—I think it was baseball cards, if I remember correctly—avoiding a giant party that his wife is throwing in the house. <laughs> 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 hilarious. He operates
1: in his own way, but he's—he's he's also a great writer. He really yeah. is.
0: Yeah, I love that, and I love that. For me, and I think that you—I don't know you other than today, really—but you have that same feeling that I get around Russ. Is that you do believe that a rising tide lifts all boats? Yes, that giving feeling. So it's not surprising that you two both speak so highly of another individual who has that same idea.
1: Yeah. Well, as you know, it's it's brutally competitive. Show business is brutally competitive, and when you find. Your people, when you find you know find your friends in it, it's it's such a relief because actually, I mean, I love writers. I work with a lot of writers, and I teach writers at Columbia and everything, and work with writers at the Writers Guild. And, and I, I love writers. Um, our meetings at the Writers Guild Initiative are so great because everyone is so opinionated and not shy about putting it out there. And funny and sharp, and uh, we also uh, we do serve uh, we do serve alcohol at our meetings.
0: Oh! <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so it's they're 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 very entertaining, and it's one of the things I really miss about uh, about you know this the pandemic is that we have these meetings. They're still fun, but they're on Zoom, and it just makes me want to get together.
0: I'm curious about. Good Vibrations. You wrote the book for the play for the Beach Boys, Good Vibrations.
1: Yes, yes.
0: They are Brian Wilson, legendary.
1: Absolutely. Were
0: you freaked out at all? I mean, I know you have so much experience and you've written a million things, but was there an intimidation factor there?
1: Absolutely, because um, I just love the Beach Boys. I mean, I really, I, I just, like Pet Sound's one of the great I mean, for me, probably the greatest album ever made. And so it was an unusual situation, Um, good vibrations because the producers had had the option for several years and had not been able to get anything together. And the option was going to run out in six months. I I think it was six months. And so ordinarily, um, the, the time, the gestation period for your musical from the time of starting to Broadway is seven years. So I, <laughs> so like Jersey Boys was like I don't know six or seven years. So I knew, and my agent told me you are stepping into the fire. But I thought I will never, ever, ever get this chance. And it was it was a blast. And and uh, Brian meeting Brian Wilson and. I, I, was a, I have to say, I, I'm not usually this way, but I was a total fanboy when I met him. And he said the greatest thing. He said, Richard, you made me proud of my music. And I just thought, you know what? It's all worth it. It was so great. Wow.
0: So great.
1: And uh, yeah, Mike Love came another night. Yeah, I'm sure. But I th- I think it's just um I think that they were so extraordinary and what he was doing was so amazing and I so I spent that whole year just immersed in the Beach Boys. I read every book about the Beach Boys and listened to the music all the time and it was to- it was totally great. It was so it was so much fun. But meeting him, you know, every once in a while you meet somebody where it just matters in a way that hardly anyone else does matter in that way
0: i love yeah. that you had that experience oh
1: yeah oh yeah yeah well did you grow up in los angeles if you or- i
0: did not i grew up in seattle
1: oh okay but did you follow the Beach Boys? A lot? I mean, did you? Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. for sure, yeah. And my brothers yeah. are much older than I am, so the house was filled with all kinds of music. But Pet Sounds, my, my older brother Matthew had that record. Yeah. You know, and yeah. he explained to me that the Beatles, the Beatles are great, but they're great because of the Beach Boys.
1: <laughs> well, there's competition.
0: I know. The
1: Beatles heard Pet Sounds yeah. and realized. They had some catching up to do, and then they did Sergeant Pepper. So, yeah, so.
0: which is a great record. Yes. yes yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Richard, you are fantastic. I want everyone to read It Happened Here. I'm going to put links on my heyhumanpodcast.com. Where's the best place for people to find you out in the wild world?
1: Um, well, my, uh, you, you can find me at my website, richarddresser.com. Um, I am recently on Twitter.
0: That's exciting. I will add you immediately.
1: Yeah, you know, I wasn't on Twitter, but um, I talked to my publisher and he said, you know, you really should be on Twitter. So I do go on as uh, Richard Dresser and it happened here and make various observations about the situation. Uh, recently, I, uh, I thanked the president Uh, for putting to rest any questions about American exceptionalism. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I actually, it's, it's fun. It's because I sort of think that way in short, you know, kind of short bursts like that. It's fun during the day.
0: Yes. Twitter's meant for that. So that's the, so your Twitter handle is at it happened here.
1: Yes. And I'm on, I'm also on Facebook. Okay. Both of these, You know, I have no character at all. I mean, I guess that's obvious by now. But I I sort of, like, made fun of them for years. And now I embrace them completely. I love it. And I'm actually connected to a lot of people I wasn't connected to before.
0: Yeah. It is, again, it's that the evil empire. But it's also, it's great. It has provided a lot of information and a lot of humanitarianism and a lot of resource. What are you going to do?
1: Yeah. 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 I got to tell you, this was such a pleasure talking to you.
0: I had a blast. Thank you so much. I
1: really appreciate it. When you have uh, your your QAnon guest, um, I'd like to come on for like 10 minutes if that's okay.
0: You want to ask him questions? (laughs) Yeah, I do have
1: questions. I have big questions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. It's a deal. Uh, If there's anybody out there. And I think people, uh, you know, anytime I have a guest where I don't agree with them at all, yeah i'm not I'm not yelling i'm not being a dick i just you know i'm just trying to get to the bottom of things and i think yeah. i think sometimes people might be nervous, but if they listen to my body of work, they'll know that yeah. that's yeah. not that's not my end game i just i'm just want to know why how come yeah. you know well yeah. there's
1: obviously you obviously have a great generosity of spirit and that so they should not be afraid to um come on and 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 talk about it and if they have Incorporated it into their life. It's worth questioning that's it's right questioning it yeah.
0: that is it. Just to speak to what you said about, you know, college, my I loved I loved my classes in college. I love my literature courses. It I love my religion courses. I to me to be able to have dissent in a classroom and and have that debate is right. incredible. and it it makes me sad. That that art is is seems to be losing ground. That people don't know how to do that anymore, and that schools are in fact stopping that from happening.
1: Right, right. It's sort of taking care of people in a way that they shouldn't be taken care of. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that going on. Strange it's- days helicopter, uh, helicopter universities. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's a great great way to put it. Yes. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show. It has been my honor and uh, everyone definitely uh, read It Happened Here. It is, uh, it's an exceptional book. Thanks so much. Bye. 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 Rate and review Hey Humans on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye. Thank you